Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, will the real Xi Jinping please stand up? We hear from writer and academic Kerry Brown about the policies and the personality behind China's all-powerful leader, whose trajectory and ambitions after a decade in power are still less than entirely familiar to many in the West. He's one of the most powerful people in the world, yet we seem to know little about him. Who is Xi Jinping and what are his ambitions for China and the rest of the world? Writer and academic Kerry Brown is Professor of Chinese Studies and Director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London. His latest book is Xi, A Study in Power. He joined historian, author and broadcaster Rana Mitter to discuss Xi for the second part of our China series. Here's Rana with more. Welcome to all of our audience for this event from Intelligence Squared with me, Rana Mitter. Our guest tonight is going to be giving us one of the most stimulating insights into one of the most important people and topics on the planet. Our speaker is Professor Kerry Brown. He's the author of over 10 books on modern Chinese politics, history and language. All of them are an excellent read, but I particularly recommend the new one. I'm going to be in conversation with Kerry asking about the book. And in the second part, we're going to be taking your questions. Kerry, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. Great to see you, Ron. Now, Kerry, let's start with something about the man himself. I'm going to get a sort of overview of him before we start delving into both his career, the, the path that got him to the very top in China, and of course, even more exciting in some ways, what might be about to happen next. But let's hear about him first. There's one particular verb that really stood out for me when I read your account of Xi Jinping, uh, the Chinese leader. You say he's a man who exudes power. Now, I'd love to think that I exude power. I'd love to think I exuded anything that wasn't offensive to, to people, but something tells me I'm probably not quite in that category. What, what do you mean by that particular phrasing? What does it say about this man? I think, Riley, you're being too modest. You, Of course you exude power. Of course you exude power <laughs> and charm. That's just aftershave, um, but go on. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it was uh, inspired a bit by Winston Lord, who had been uh, one of the people that met Mao Zedong in the early 70s. And I asked him uh, some years ago, you know, what was it like meeting Mao? And although Mao was very, very old then, uh, and had Parkinson's disease and couldn't really communicate, uh, Lord said he exuded this sort of sense of raw power. Um, and I suppose that people, I mean, I have met Xi Jinping briefly once in 2007 when he was in uh, Shanghai as party secretary. Uh, and I can't say I, I had that impression then, but that was when he was being very modest and humble. Uh, but I know that people who have talked to him, diplomats and others, have said that there's this sort of sense of, uh, you know, kind of confidence and uh, a sort of stillness around him. You know, people uh, kind of listen to him very intently in this system. And as you know, in this sort of political system, Rana, um, you know, people uh, near the top, they have these extraordinary kind of, uh, uh, you know, theatre of power. And I think that's what I really wanted to convey that, you know, this is a performance of someone who not only has power, but knows it and other people know it too. I think it's very striking about his deportment and his way of speaking and his body language. Because in some ways that's rather different from his immediate predecessors. I mean, you know, let's be honest, anyone who is the General Secretary of the Communist Party of China, the President of China, is a pretty powerful man. And so far, frankly, it's always been uh, a man. Well, I suppose technically speaking, you could say that Madame Sun Qingling was the President of the People's Republic back in the uh, Mao days, but that was an on, much more honorary position in, in, in those days. So let's leave that, uh, leave that aside. In terms of Jiang Zemin, the man who ruled through much of the 90s and early 2000s, and Hu Jintao, the man who was there from 2002 to 2012, they had pretty much all the same positions organizationally in the party. And we'll probably talk more about that in a, a, a few minutes. But in terms of their projection of themselves and their idea of China, they really were quite different from Xi Jinping. I'm trying to stress the point that I think you make that he's very distinctive, even as communist Chinese leaders go. I suppose I'm a bit prosaic about that. I think China today is a different entity than it was even 15 years ago when the silence of Hu Jintao, uh, as you rightly said, was uh, baffling us all by his uh, you know, extraordinary kind of technocratic speeches. Um, I think you know you have to remember that uh, China um, in 2022, even though it's going through a bit of uh, sort of a economic problems at the moment, is markedly and materially different to the place that existed a decade or so ago. And I think that context means that as a leader, you can be a different kind of person. I mean, Xi Jinping can talk to the world with 
you know, the world's second biggest military, the world's second biggest economy. I mean, huge influence over a not so confident West. Uh, whereas, of course, previous leaders had to talk with a smaller economy, a smaller military, and also a more confident West. So I think the confluence of those three factors means Xi Jinping can speak the way he does and act the way he does because China is the way it is now. It gives him the platform to do that. Well, I think understanding that the person doesn't just make the times, the times can make the person and the two interact is an important element of how we understand him. We're going to get back in just a little while to the question of what that might mean for now and for the future. But let's dive back a bit into the past, because one of the things that's very distinctive about this book is that you really do spend a lot of time in quite a granular way in looking at the way in which she was formed. And I think that's particularly useful for Chinese leaders, because to Western readers who are used to perhaps reading presidential biographies, you know, whoever it might be, Lyndon Johnson or uh, Obama or even Donald Trump, of course, uh, rather different sort of biography, but still, you know, live very much in, in, in plain sight or indeed British prime ministers. It's quite unusual to get that kind of detailed granular account of what it was that made these particular characters. Let's uh, we probably can't do the whole thing, but let's try and get some high points. I mean, first of all, he is someone whose parentage matters, in particular his father, Xi Zhuxin. What, what does the family background say about the making and the shaping of Xi Jinping? I think it says uh, good and bad things. On the one hand, obviously his father's had a big influence on him. Just explain who I his father quote, is for um, the, the, the audience. Uh, Xi, uh, Xi Zhongshun. So Xi Zhongshun was a military leader in the 30s and 40s, early member of the communist movement, and then was a vice premier uh, after 1949 and uh, until 62 led on sort of cultural issues and then was, uh, felled, um, for sort of, uh, you know, kind of ideological struggles then. Uh, but I mean, you know, Xi Jong-sun is, um, a relatively benign leader today because when he came back, uh, in the 1980s, you know, he had a kind of role in the reform and opening up and he's been a sort of like attached to the, or associated with the liberal, uh, you know, kind of part of the party in 1989 and the student uprising. So this is, this is a good father to have, you know, I think we can all see that this is a sort of not like having a very problematic father. Um, I think though for Xi, Jing, uh, Xi Jinping, I mean, so his father was one of the, what we call the red elite, uh, but he was also someone with a problem. So, you know, Xi Jinping didn't really have a father around for, his adolescence and he's heard it. Just adult. to be clear, because not everyone will know, basically in, I think, 1967, you'll correct me, uh, the family was packed off because they were purged during the Cultural Revolution, that, you know, really kind of time of turmoil that instigated by Chairman Mao. And Xi Jinping at the age of, what, 16, suddenly found himself basically in a farming village out, you know, in the wilds of Shanxi province out in northwest China. That's true. I mean, so, you know, this is sort of why he's been described as the well, peasant emperor, some have described him, you know, as someone who came from an elite background, but ended up uh, eating bitterness, as the phrase goes in the countryside. Uh, and others, uh, I think it was Lee Kuan Yew, the late Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore, called him Asia's Nelson Mandela, which is a bit, um, uh, you know, flattering. But, you know, he's someone who uh, did go through a tough time. I, I, I'm interested in um, what is made of that time today in the hagiography of Xi Jinping. I mean, I think you're uh, comments earlier about, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson and Anthony Caro's huge biography. I mean, the problem is we can't really write that sort of stuff about at least uh, leaders since Jiang Zeming, uh, you, you know, kind of Mao Zedong, maybe you could write that sort of stuff, you know, because there's sources, but it, it's really hard to get access now. But what is clear is that Xi Jinping's story is important for his leadership in ways that Hu Jintao, his predecessor, until 2012. You know, there is no story about him. It was never mentioned. And I'm also interested in the fact that the one or two things that Xi Jinping has said about that period, the Cultural Revolution from 1966-67, are pretty um, negative, even though he's been called a Maoist kind of leader. Uh, and I came across one um, account, I think it was called The Son of the Yellow Emperor, that he had written in the late, I think, 1990s, where he said, you know, I can put up with things today because of the bitterness of what I went through then. So it's not an entirely straightforward story he's telling. It's not about everything that was glorious, uh, but it is that he has a story that is symbolic 
And working out the symbolism of that, I think, is very important. Well, it's worth perhaps delving a little more into the story as it's told. You say it becomes partly hagiographical, but it's clearly, at least in part, based on things that do seem to be you know, based on, on, on his real experience. I mean, one thing that's brought up, not least actually on some Chinese TV programs, uh, is the idea that that was the time when, by you know, dint of hook or crook, borrowing various books, he became more educated. He learned to read and across not just in Chinese books, but actually a variety of different literatures. It's said, we don't have proof, but it's said that he walked, you know, many kilometers, 10 kilometers or something to a neighboring village because he'd heard there was a Chinese translation of Goethe's Faust, which he then apparently read and then, you know, walked back to, to give it back to its, its, its owner. Do you, it's almost like a sort of European style Bildungsroman, the story of, you know, a youth sent out somewhere where he kind of reads himself into a new personality. How much of that would you take seriously and how much do you think is a kind of standardised trope about the kind of intellectual development of, of a leader? That's a good question. I mean, the fact that they put a lot of you know, effort into this story in, in accounts in Chinese, which I use in the book, is striking. You know, the idea that he is a man of culture, though, of course, he didn't go uh, to formal schooling until he went to Tsinghua University in, I think, 1974, when the colleges and universities reopened after the Cultural Revolution. I mean, it is clear as part of his persona that he likes to reference, you know, culture. I mean, he goes to Russia and mentions a list of Russian authors. He goes to Germany and mentions Goethe. He goes to, you know, Britain and makes the mandatory reference to Shakespeare. Uh, and, you know, so it's clear that he values culture as part of his identity. Um, did he, you know, records that I've found, you know, testimony shows, yeah, he was known to be quite bookish when he was uh, a sent down youth. Um, I, I, you know, he was known to kind of uh, be quite thoughtful and well regarded. Um, beyond that, it's very hard to, you know, are people who, who knew him then, are they telling the truth? Because these days, of course, they can't say that he was an awful human being. If they're still in China anyway, there'll be problems. Um, I mean, I, I think it's impossible to say. I, I mean, we do know. I mean, just finally, you know, the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 76, you know, kind of inspired by Mao Zedong, uh, was a very specific moment in Chinese history. And everyone has very particular memories of that. And this generation, I think, are the last that really do, you know, this, this leadership of the elite leadership. Uh, you know, they do remember that period. And there is a kind of generic quality to what they went through, either as victims, uh, which in a sense he was, or as um, protagonists which other leaders were in, you know, kind of fighting on, on the more leftist side of politics. So that gives us a narrative to kind of try and fit him in. Uh, newer leaders don't have that kind of sameness about their their past. And it is worth remembering perhaps in a general sense that the current leadership generation, people in their 60s and 70s, is the last one that would have been teenagers and in formation during the Cultural Revolution. And I think that that does have a wider effect that we may, may yet get back to. Let's carry on, carry on though with Xi and his upward rise, because the Cultural Revolution, as for so many Chinese, is a transformative, although in many ways, uh, for many, horrific moment. It wasn't really horrific for Xi, from what we can see. It was, you know, dull in some ways and tedious and painful and perhaps humiliating, but not actually um, involving torture or, or death. And that, of course, is something that I'm sure the whole family should be should be very thankful for. But Eventually, the Cultural Revolution ended, and Xi Jinping found himself taking um, a path as he was brought back into the mainstream of Communist Party life um, and began his upward uh, ascent. You spend, again, quite a lot of the book uh, drawing on Chinese sources to tell a story about what you might call the uh, the middle part of uh, Xi's life, his sort of um, rise without trace, you might almost say, through the Chinese bureaucracy as a good cadre and a good, loyal member. Of, of the party. Do you think that in general, we can gain any picture of what made him from those years, which seem in some ways to be, well, to be honest, a little bland? Yeah. I mean, I think there are a few things that you can say are characteristic of his uh, politics and his approach to power uh, and that were apparent, you know, from the two sort of 1980s when he started to become a provincial leader in Fujian in the south and um, east of the country. Firstly, he seems to have always been a true believer. Uh, you know, the idea that the Communist Party had this sort of messianic kind of task to lead China to greatness. It seems that's the core of his belief. The second is uh, that he um, had a clear idea that, the, that the, the party was there to do politics, not to do business. And I think one of the problems as China grew richer was that 
party officials did get caught in a, a you know kind of commercial interests and the richer the country got the worse you know communist party officials got in terms of corruption uh, but he he clearly took a stand against that i suppose the third which is helpful is uh for, for people writing about him is that he did also clearly want to communicate i mean he wrote uh, you know a lot um he did speak quite clearly he complained as mao zedong did many decades before about party speak, you know, guanhua, the kind of idea of, or guahua, as I suppose it's called, the kind of idea of, you know, bureaucratic speech. And until recently, I think his language was quite kind of clear. I suppose the other thing that I'm really struck by is he was willing to be very unpopular in berating colleagues for their lack of faith and their lack of belief in the party. Uh, so this is a colleague that's a little bit difficult to sit beside. Um, and someone who has this sort of uh, quite grating confidence, I suppose, but is also someone that's probably pretty impressive and you know where you stand with them. And I think that probably is a bit of the uh, reason for why he was elevated. You know, part of the reason is why he was elevated later, even though there were many people who could have been competing for those positions. Now, let's talk a little bit about the specifics of some of that mid-career, because one of the things that, again, well, you know very well, Kerry, but you know, just worth explaining perhaps to the audience is that performance at provincial level it has become a really important stepping stone in terms of getting to the top in Chinese politics. The Chinese Communist Party likes to say about itself, you don't have to share that opinion, but you know it's something they say about themselves, that they're a technocracy, a meritocracy. They don't claim to be a liberal democracy, or they claim to be a democracy of a, a different sort. But they would argue that actually, you know, with the, with the number of sort of slightly offbeat leaders that have been elected in various democracies around the world in recent years, the Chinese system forces you to show your paces at various levels in the bureaucracy long before you could ever get to the top level. And some provinces in particular have been used as testing grounds for particular ideas. So Hu Jintao spent time in Tibet, which frankly he probably did because it was a question of repressing um, dissidents there. Um, Wang Yang, currently at the top level, top seven Politburo Standing Committee, spent time in Guangdong, also in Chongqing, two very dynamic, economically interesting cities. Chongqing was a bit scandal-ridden because of its previous leader, Bo Xilai, back in the 20, uh, two, well, late 2000s, early 2010s. Um, and again, that that was a test uh, for him, which clearly he must have must have passed with flying colours. Now, the province that Xi Jinping made his mark in is the east central province of Zhejiang. Traditionally, a very prosperous province, one that has some of China's great cultural heartland, cities like Hangzhou, uh, for instance. But at the same time, perhaps not at the forefront of the kind of go-go economic story of the 80s and 90s, quite as much as it became later. Why was Zhejiang province important? And how did Xi Jinping's tenure there change it and change him? Yeah, so he was party secretary uh, from 2002 to 2007 of Zhejiang. And I guess um, he had not been in that position elsewhere. I mean, in Fujian, uh, where he was for 15 years before then, he'd been governor and that's more of an administrative position. Uh, but party secretary is where the real power is because that's the party position. So uh, to be in that position over a province of 44 million people. It's like being, you know, kind of a head of state of a, a kind of significant country uh, elsewhere. And its per capita GDP is pretty, you know, it's pretty good. It's close to Shanghai, a coastal province and uh, quite dynamic. Also, I think um, at that time, Alibaba uh, and, you know, companies like that were really starting based in Hangzhou. And it's sort of interesting to think, you know, did he have a kind of role in, uh, you know, kind of inculcating these businesses and making them you know, kind of more, uh, uh, you know, kind of supported. Um, the things that he wrote in Zhejiang, which I use in, in my book, are these little kind of um, chapters, I suppose, little sort of sayings from the party secretary. And, you know, that's right, the sort of like the, the analects, you know, Confucius. Um, they're, they're a bit more verbose, I have to say. Um, and the thing that has struck me about that is, A, uh, that he was an environmentalist there, which is quite interesting if you think at that time, I suppose. Just explain uh, a bit, when you say that, and you do say it in the book, Kerry, how would you substantiate that? What do you mean by he was an environmentalist in, in contrast with Ward? He well, he talked a lot about the importance of preserving the environment and also about, uh, you know, it's no good just pumping out GDP. We need to have better quality GDP. And that's a little bit before that kind of became government policy in, in about 2007. Uh, but it was never really, as you know, realized. I mean, I think 
you, you know, these, these are sort of interesting um, for a very risk-averse sort of political system, you know, to stick your head out like that, uh, you know, on two things which are a little bit kind of edgy is interesting, you know, um, along with berating colleagues for all being corrupt apart from him, which is interesting for another reason. Um, I think it showed that he probably had a sense of um, entitlement. And indeed, I, I refer to a WikiLeaks, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, from the American embassy, I believe, in about 2009, where they interviewed um, uh, someone who'd known Xi Jinping as a younger man. And then, uh, you know, when, when he was just starting out, and they said, he is someone who is um, not corruptible by money. Uh, he has a strong sense of entitlement because of his background that we are the people who need to look after the party to, you know, we, we, we're the kind of, you know, descendants of the great initial generation. Uh, but he also said, um, uh, this, this uh, a former friend of Xi Jinping's, that he was corruptible probably by power. And I suppose that sort of is interesting. Do we see that today? And we can maybe talk about that a bit later. I mean, Certainly, Zhejiang shows someone who has lots and lots of confidence. And I think we have seen that manifested amply since he came to central leadership in 2007. Well, let's talk about that role in central leadership, because actually your chapters are quite intriguingly structured. And rather than choosing 2012, which is perhaps the moment that he starts to take the top positions, uh, president of China, general secretary of the Communist Party, uh, chairman of the Central Military Commission, you know, all these sorts of really big name, big ticket uh, positions, you point out that actually the, it starts five years earlier, because of course, a tradition which had existed for perhaps a quarter of a century was that the successor to the existing top leader would be known five years in advance. And there was a bit of a lead in on this. And of course, we'll probably get back to this, but this is something that Xi Jinping has not done, which is an interesting change. But in the case of Xi, it was done. So by 2007, um, the Politburo knew, and therefore the rest of the world quite quickly got to know that Xi Jinping was nominated as, as the next uh, leader in, in, in waiting, uh, although this was not undisputed by some other senior figures in the, in the party. Why do you think of all the people they could have chosen the, the, the hand fell on him. And how uncontested or otherwise do you think that path to actually seizing the genuinely top levers of power was five years later in 2012? This is the uh, $1.4 billion question, I suppose, if we're going to have a dollar for every oh, yes. person in China. Um, I think, uh, you know, around about 2006, as, as you probably remember too, you know, there were three names that were figuring a lot. Li Keqiang, uh, Liu Yunchao and, and Xi Jinping, and, and they were kind of all about equal. So by that time, there'd been enough of a clue that, uh, you know, all these other leaders that we had been talking about a bit um, had sort of disappeared. Um, and these were the three core contenders. Um, they were regarded that way because they had a lot of provincial experience and leadership experience that meant, okay, they tick the boxes, you know, that you'd need to tick in order to kind of be considered. Um, but also because they had been pushed a bit in Chinese media. How Xi Jinping emerged as the number one uh, in 2007 and then got the top position five years later um, is still a mystery because there was obviously a big round of consultation, we are told, uh, and that involved party members, it involved you know, previous leaders, it involved uh, colleagues, and how it was sort of broken uh, is still, you know, not very clear. Um, one thing I think is clear is that it was probably far um, less seamless than at the time it seemed. I mean, you remember the big issues about Boy uh, Boy Silai, uh, who who was also, you know, a kind of potential contender. And the okay, fact do you that just very very quickly them, remind us who, who I mean, for the audience, who, who Boy Silai yeah. was and his his downfall and that of his wife, indeed. Indeed. Boisi Lai was an elite leader who had been Minister of Trade, and then he was the party secretary in the huge city of Chongqing. Very innovative, and probably the, as one uh, uh, German politician actually said to me at the time, the only politician in China of his generation who reached people's emotions and spoke in a very kind of direct uh, and, and quite effective way. Uh, but he was felled because of his wife's involvement in the murder of British businessman Neil Haywood, uh, and also for claims of corruption. He, had he not been felled, uh, probably would have been a very attractive politician for people to look at. I mean, he was very appealing. Um, he was also accused of being very autocratic. Um, his politics is not dissimilar to what subsequently happened. Uh, very populist, very nationalistic, 
had a very severe crackdown on mafia in Chongqing, which subsequently, of course, happened against all people who were considered corrupt under Xi Jinping. So it's kind of one of those big what ifs, you know, Xi Jinping had not been, uh, had had that kind of competition, what would have happened? Um, that didn't happen. Xi Jinping was pretty uncontested as he got the sort of number one position. And he is certainly since 2012 not being contested by anyone. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. So let's talk a bit about some of the reasons why that uncontestedness, if that is indeed an abstract noun that one can uh, use or in invent, has emerged. And I want to divide a little bit um, the you know the, the the last sort of part of our conversation for the next few minutes into both domestic and international. I also want to remind people: please do send your questions in. Xi Jinping is one of the most intriguing people in the world, regardless of what you think of him. Kerry Brown is the man who can, I hope, answer almost any question that you might have about him, certainly better than I could. And you can just send them in through uh, the. Uh, Q&A function. And please do also uh, make sure that if you're interested, give us a tweet on uh, hashtag IQ squared. Okay. Um, Kerry, let's talk about the domestic politics, the things that again have secured Xi Jinping, if that's the right way to put it. I would say, tell me if I've got this hopelessly wrong, I quite possibly have, but I would say that if I had to um, associate Xi's ability to consolidate his rule with one particular concept, and it's quite a populist concept, it is anti-corruption. That was a sort of train on which he rode into the idea that he would be able both to, in some senses, set himself against the legacy of his predecessors, which was quite bold, but also not only to create an image of a populist man who was there as Mr. Cleanup, but also, of course, uh, deal with some of his opponents within the party. So it was um, a message that had plenty of uses, all of them very advantageous to, to Xi. Was anti-corruption really an important part of that element of, of selling himself? Yeah, I mean, when he first emerged as uh, national leader after the Congress in November 2012, he made quite a brief speech, uh, not uh, subsequently when he was speaking for three and a half hours or more, five years later, same occasion. Uh, on this speech, he mentioned uh, that the party had grown distant from people and had created this antagonistic relationship and that it needed to restore its legitimacy and mandate. And I think um, that's what he's done with the anti-corruption struggle uh, to make the party a, a more effective political entity, uh, to deal with the fact that it had maxed out on all of the economic opportunities in the previous 10 years and that it had lost its moral authority. I mean, I think the consensus before um, 2012 was in China, it was all about the ec economic stupid. You know, it's all about the economy stupid. It's, you know, the party is always trying to get legitimacy from the economy. I think Xi Jinping is a manifestation of a dramatic and historic change, which is it's all about identity. 
And that's, you know, not something he did on his own. I mean, it's been talked about a lot before. Wang Huning, for instance, the great idol of, of this leadership and previous ones has written a lot about this. Xi Jinping has answered, I think, three questions for the politics of contemporary China, which are crucial. He has answered the question of who are we as Chinese? Who are we? He has answered the question of who is our enemy? And he's answered the question of what's our vision? Uh, who we are, 5,000 years, culture, all the rest of it, we're Chinese and we're proud of it. Who's our enemy? It's, you know, the people outside who always wanted to do us down and have been doing that for 150 years and now we're winning. And what's our vision? Great, powerful, strong country restored to its status and its center in the world. So, you know, it's kind of fairly powerful politics for emotions and the economics, economics is a process to deliver part of that, but it's not about the economy. It's really about identity. And just a reminder that if you want to quiz, carry on that or anything else, do use the ask question function. You can anonymize your question or you can put your name on it, but do keep them uh, keep them coming in. I know that we have already actually got quite a few questions sweeping in. So we'll keep talking for a little bit, Kerry, but we will soon turn to our audience's very wide range of, of, of questions. Let me put a couple more things to you, though, about the, the kind of forward march, as it were, the long march of, of Xi Jinping. One is the year 2017. It's exactly halfway through his first 10 years, although as it turns out, almost certainly not his last um, 10 years. And it's when he declares in his big speech at the Party Congress, 19th Party Congress, that China, or rather he crystallizes the idea at that Congress, that China is in a new era. And you actually make that a very explicit part of your explanation of his later political life. What is it that's new about the new era as far as Xi Jinping is concerned, do you think? And why does it start at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, about these narratives of China uh, winning and being number one. Uh, and, you know, the kind of fact that the party itself was celebrating, as it subsequently has, 100th anniversary. Uh, the fact that there's a greater sense that, you know, China's kind of, you know, achieving its modernity on its own terms. And I think also um, an idea that this uh, is, you know, this is not um, a dream, although they talk about the China dream, this is tangible, it's happening. You know, Chinese people can see their country being um, respected, feared uh, globally. They can see, uh, you know, the kind of wealth around them in the cities, that the high train, high speed trains, you know, 35,000 kilometers, I think at the moment, more than the rest of the world put together. Um, they can kind of really feel this moment of, you know, kind of renaissance or rejuvenation, as it's called. And I think that, again, reinforced this idea that this is a, a country which is saying, we can say with pride now, culturally and politically and economically, that we are Chinese and we don't need to apologize for that. And actually, you know, the West has lost its way and that's not our fault, but we're not going to step back, you know, if you are going to screw up all the time. I mean, you see this. Um, partly from the great economic crisis from 2008, uh, China looking at the world and thinking, okay, not only are you, um, you know, uh, not great in terms of your, you know, sort of political proposals for us, because look what happened with Russia when that fell apart. Um, but you know, you're no good at capitalism too, and we're going to beat you at that. <laughs> so I think this captures this unprecedented new period where China will write modernity, as, as I think you've also spoken about, in its own terms. Uh, and in its own way, in its own language. Absolutely. But is there a paradox in the fact that as China has become more confident under Xi, I mean, I think there's no question that it's more confident than it, than it has been. I mean, COVID may have been a bit of a bump, but we can, we can talk about that in the Q&A, I think. But while China's become more confident over the last 10 to 15 years, more sure of its place in the world, more sure of who they are, the identity questions you've mentioned, it's also become more authoritarian in the sense that China's you know, Communist Party has never run a liberal democracy. And I think my own feeling is those who thought it was going to turn into one, I think, haven't really spent much time reading the text. But there's no doubt you and I know that 10, 15 years ago, there was more space within the authoritarian system for discussion on social media of matters often quite political. Um, you could talk about constitutionalism, different types of, you know, the famous debate between Bill Clinton and Jiang Zemin on live television back in 1998 about democracy. Even though China's much stronger these days, all of those things are pretty unimaginable under Xi Jinping. Is it a paradox that a stronger China has to be one that actually talks to itself less about difficult things? Or is that just what a Western liberal would say? Well, I think it's a China want, that wants to talk to itself with its own language rather than a borrowed language. And I think it's not that it doesn't want to undertake some kind of reforms. I, I mean, that may happen. 
but they're definitely not going to be anything that I guess the outside world was expecting. Uh, I think there was probably a time, uh, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, when maybe there were uh, members of the elite that were sincerely interested in uh, democratization of a sort. Uh, but I think a lot of things have happened much in the outside world that have changed the kind of elite and, and actually many views in China. I think also, as you know, nationalism is the great kind of fuel of this project, you know, and, and that justifies the autoc autocracy in a way that, you know, this moment of national renaissance needs sort of focus. You can't, you know, we can't screw it up. We've got to, you know, look at the West. They're all over the place. America's tearing itself apart. Europe is a mess. We're not going to, you know, go along that route. We're going to be um, unified. And, you know, once we've got to the sort of top of the plateau, then we can kind of think about what we do after that. I think that gives that a sense of focus and urgency. You're right, though. I mean, the fact that this level of autocracy wasn't really expected, even in China, I don't think, is is the big puzzle. And as I say at the end of the book, it's weird, this complicated story of 1.4 billion people, continental-sized economy, place of amazing diversity, and it's all about one man. This is bizarre. This is a very strange, uh, you know, kind of manifestation. It, it's not the punchline we were expecting. No, and of course, it's not a story that's over yet by any means. It's, of course, later this autumn. If all goes according to plan, and those are things you should always say with Chinese, indeed, any other politics, um, he will be taking an unprecedented, in the modern era, unprecedented third term and possibly terms beyond that as leader, which is a very natural place to segue into now quite a, a welter of questions that has come in from our audience here at uh, Intelligence Squared Plus. And here's one from Sarah. And Sarah's asking, what does China's harsh COVID lockdowns, especially Shanghai, tell us about Xi? And I think it is known that the so-called zero COVID policy is very personally associated with, associated with Xi Jinping. There have even been rumours, really hard to substantiate, that maybe possibly some other top leaders are a little nervous about keeping these lockdowns going, but that it's Xi's desire, certainly for now, that they should continue. So what do those lockdowns tell us about him? Yeah, I mean, I think the fear is that you're going to have very high levels of fatalities because, to be honest, uh, as far as I understand, the Chinese vaccine, which is the only permissible one, is not hugely effective and a lot of elderly haven't taken it. So I think part of the issue is this is a system that doesn't politically know what would happen if they had, you know, a large number of fatalities. I think the second is um, at the moment, these lockdowns are in specific places like Shanghai or Beijing and, uh, you know, kind of they um, are working in those places and bringing the infections down. Um, but I think, you know, the economic hit well, it's starting, uh, but the problem is, you know, how do you kind of justify a total sort of about turn um, without kind of losing face? Um, the rumours about disagreement uh, and Li Keqiang, perhaps the premier, you know, kind of with other leaders, you know, being critical are intriguing because there's been very little about that in the past. Um, I suppose it makes sense if you think uh, the economics is still important as a process in China and as a political asset. And if there is uh, a very, very big downturn, uh, and even a recession, that is a China that no one has seen in many, many years. So that would make leaders nervous. Uh, I think, though, that if that were to happen, you would get a big upturn in nationalism. So this is a problem for all of us. Well, let's talk about the way in which that kind of nationalistic politics interacts with, with personal politics, you might say. One of the statements that's often made, often slightly carelessly perhaps, about um, Xi Jinping is that he's forming a personality cult. And there's a question related actually from Philip, uh, because, of course, Mao Zedong, back in the, uh, the Cold War era, created what was definitely, you know, you could call it almost a godlike cult of personality with, you know, billions of copies of the Little Red Book printed, statues everywhere, you know, children, young people fainting as they saw him in Tiananmen Square. That's not quite the kind of personality um, kind of structure that has emerged around Xi Jinping. But there's no doubt that he's more concerned about his own person than, let's say, his predecessor, Hu Jintao, was, who, as we already observed more than once, you know, didn't really seem to project very much personality at all. Do you think that there is a personality cult, Philip is asking? And linked to that, do you think that if there is, it's a leading question, um, that he would actually ever step down? I mean, I think there's definitely a, a strong personality cult within the party. Uh, they're the ones, you know, the 90, well, so 95 million members of the party, but you're talking about the party elite. You know, they do have to kind of sign up to this, uh, you know, collective, you know, this core leadership with him, as, as you said at the very beginning, you know, right at the core of that. Um, 
Chinese society is obviously very complicated now. I mean, it's almost like a techno autocracy. So, you know, I think this is a society, this is a leadership with a lot of um, technological assets that you know Mao and, and and others never had. Uh, how deep this goes into people's hearts, I don't know. I mean, are people uh, do they have an allegiance to Xi Jinping as a person, as they had an allegiance to Mao Zedong as a person, or do they? an allegiance to, you know, this nationalist vision of a great country. And he's the sort of person who they think is going to lead them there. Um, you know, it's almost like, you know, kind of a religious cult where it's not that you've got the savior now, but you've got one of the great, you know, sort of apostles. <laughs> and I think Xi Jinping is, is that sort of leadership. Uh, it's not so much about him. It's about the narrative and the message. And if you could say that it's an autocracy, it's about the domination of that nationalistic message rather than a specific individual and their, you know, what they mean within the system. Here's an interesting question from Sam in Brighton. Does she have family? To which the answer is certainly yes. And do you think he's the kind of leader who would want a hereditary heir? Well, those are two slightly different questions, but they relate to the sort of wider issue of, you know, his wife, who's his second wife, who's quite a glamorous character in the uh, Chinese showbiz world, and a daughter who's rather sort of low-key, but of course famously has studied in the United States at, at Harvard. What do we know about Xi's family, and does it really tell us that much about him more broadly? Yeah, I mean, there's interesting, uh, you know, kind of tidbits about Peng Liu and his wife, who was a very famous singer, I mean, is a very celebrated singer, uh, having family in Taiwan and, you know, kind of maybe having sympathies for Buddhism. I mean, all these sorts of stories. Xi Mingzi, who, as you say, was at Harvard and who kind of sometimes appears a little bit, uh, you know, as he's translator, there's rumors about, you know, that. Um, one thing that's distinctive about Xi Jinping is that he, in his career, made it clear his family were not going to operate in the provinces where he operated. Uh, otherwise, how would he have started this big anti-corruption fight against corrupt families? And I think he's been quite careful about keeping a distance from his brothers and uh, I believe his two sisters. Um, and so I think, you know, his family is important because they're an important network. But I think he has managed to control that. And that's a big deal in Chinese politics, because if there's one vulnerability for anyone, it's your family and how you look after them. Well, that's certainly uh, the case. And indeed, it's famously, I think, the case, isn't it, that supposedly Wang Qishan, one of the you know closest top leaders to Xi Jinping, um, a vice premier in his own right, has said that as he has no children, he can't be corrupted and that therefore he's uh, you know able to, to operate with impunity and has become, of course, a very powerful character. Let's, um, there's, I said, really a lot of very interesting questions coming in here. So let's get a few more of these in. And now, one person asks, do you have... Um, any insight into Xi's relationship with Putin? Is it a superficial relationship or do you envisage Russia and China becoming closer? And that's from Mr. V. Zelensky of Kiev. No, uh, I don't think, well, I don't know that it's not, but uh, certainly I think a lot of people are very keen to know whether the friendship without limits declared on the 4th of January during the Beijing Olympics between Xi and Putin actually has any you know, long-term substance to it, or whether it's another bit of propaganda. How do you? How, what do you think? I mean, so the you know reports are that uh, on a personal level they definitely get on and they admire each other. And I think um, you know, Moscow. I was in Moscow a few years ago where you know Moscow analysts have said, yeah, Mr. Xi and Mr. Putin think each other are great. And you get you know similar kind of language in China about you know the kind of relationship. Uh, but it is a people. You know, it's a person-to-person -person relationship. Uh, it's not like Russia and China. If you look at them, uh, particularly compatible, uh, and I think um, when you look at the awful invasion by Russia of Ukraine, uh, you see a China which is, I think, in really, really kind of two minds. On the one hand, yep, there's this friendship, but you know, you've got to make sure your friends don't uh, completely ruin things for you. Um, and so, China has at the moment kept out of this. I don't think it will get much deeper into it unless Putin does something completely reckless and crazy. Well, e even more than reckless and crazy than he's done, like invading another country. <laughs> I mean, another question that's come in that is, in a sense, you know, a natural follow-on is, what do you make of Xi's relationship with other international leaders? Sometimes, particularly in Northwest Europe and North America, we can get very fixated, for good reason, on the US-China relationship, because it is a very central and important one, and there's no doubt about, uh, uh, about its importance. But that said, that could also mean that we don't spend that much time thinking about actually other important actors who maybe are important to, to, to Xi. How do you think he rates, interacts with, thinks about other leaders apart from you know the very powerful ones like the President of the United States? 
or indeed Vladimir Putin. I mean, certainly a Chinese leader is quite accessible to African, Latin American leaders in a way that actually is not true in America or, or, or Europe. I mean, you know, they're often uh, complaining about how they don't get the right protocol. In China, they're treated usually in ways that they're very, very uh, happy with. It's interesting, actually, I, I met, kind of talked to someone who had met him, I think, three or four years ago, Xi Jinping, in a formal meeting. And they said um, he was quite sort of, you know, not robotic, but, you know, sort of fairly um, kind of unemotional, except when he started talking about football and in particular Manchester City. And apparently then he came alive. Uh, so if any leader is wanting to create a brotherly bond with Mr. Xi, talk football. Apparently, that's the only thing that he really came alive about. Although, presumably not if you're a Man United fan. <laughs> yes. Well. <laughs> you might find yourself uh, in, in deep, deep trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, understandable. Um, one other question on the international community, which again is quite a natural one in this conversation. What does Xi Jinping think of Britain? I mean, any thoughts there on the UK-China relationship? Does he think of Britain? I'm, I'm sure he does think of Britain, uh, you know, from time to time. I mean, I think uh, that... It, they, as you well know, the relationship between Britain and China is an old and well-established one. There are well-established narratives on Hong Kong. They would think about Britain because they would be irritated by whatever Britain does on, you know, about Hong Kong. Um, and certainly the Hong Kong, you know, kind of um, the offer of, uh, you know, sort of um, sort of fast track to citizenship that's seen, I think, 80, 90,000 people from Hong Kong come here in the last year. That would be something that Xi Jinping would know about. Um, I think they've tried to create a new narrative, as did we in the past. I think history is too thick and too deep, though. And I think, you know, in a sense, we have to accept that um, it's not Britain is curious. It's not that we don't have a lot of knowledge about China. We know this country quite well, and we've known it well for a long time. It's just that we are really great at forgetting, and China is really good at remembering. So until we sort that out and become better remembers, I think we're going to always have a bit of a problem. Let's use, we're beginning to get to time. We have got a bit of time in hand to dig in some other questions, and I think it would be good to do that. Let's combine some of the other audience questions with looking forward um, in terms of where she is now and where he's going to go next. Let's think about the fact that, you know, we don't know the exact date, uh, but sometime in October, possibly November, we're going to have the 20th Party Congress. As mentioned, Xi Jinping... There is every indication that he is going to seek a third term um, in uh, in the top positions in a way that would not have been done, would have been desired, but not actually granted to his predecessors, um, Jiang Zemin, who was, from all accounts, fairly vocal that he wanted to stay for another term, and Hu Jintao, who may not have been so vocal, but probably would have liked to, but they were both told now 10 years, and, and that's your lot. Not so is she, who looks like he is quite likely to take that third term. So in that context, I mean, first of all, and this is a question, I think, based uh, coming from, from Tom McCarthy, um, are there threats to that? You know, is this 100% slam dunk, do you think? You know, he's getting that, there's no question. Or, you know, barring, obviously, a kind of complete collapse of the whole of East Asia, is there anything plausible that could really get in the way of that progress? The only thing I can imagine, well, I mean, you could have an economic collapse, but then that is kind of scary for all of us, including the outside world, not just China. And I think at the moment, that's unlikely. Um, his health, maybe, is the only other thing. I mean, he's 70 next year. I mean, he's, uh, you know, kind of looks in rude health, but that might uh, be impacted. All you can say at the moment, uh, Rana, as you know, is, is uh, it's a few months before this Congress where all this is expected to be announced. And there's no clue at all to any alternatives. And uh, for a risk-averse system, which is highly controlling, that's a bit weird. If there was any likelihood of something, you know, needing to change, I think we'd see a few signs of that as we did, you know, 10 years ago. So I think the odds at the moment are that it will be continuation. Um, but, uh, you, know, you know, there's always unexpected things, but they would have to be pretty dramatic. Uh, and the problem is if that do happen, uh, China's instability, even though people outside might not particularly like the system, uh, is a problem. If it's an unstable system, uh, that's as much a problem as if it's stable and strong. In fact, it's more of a problem. So we're kind of caught in a quandary. Well, even if none of those threats materialise themselves, nonetheless, um, or, or rather if the, the greater likelihood emerges that basically he does get the third term and carries on, 
it's unlikely that the next five years are going to simply see him, you know, sitting on his hands and letting things amble past as, as things change. What do you think are likely goals or scenarios for China in the next five years? And a couple of factors, you know, you'll have lots of things to say to that, Kerry, but a couple of factors I'd throw in. One is supposing that 2024 brings the re-election of Donald Trump or another isolationist US president as opposed to the re-election of of, um, a Democrat or a more um, internationalist Republican. And beyond that, of course, um, the question of shifting, if there is a shift away from zero COVID and the question of China having closed or more open borders. So that's just a couple of things to throw in. But there's a lot to, to conjure with for Xi in the next four, four to, uh, sorry, the next five years or so. Where, where do you see it going? I, as, you, as you know, yeah, predictions about China are, are hazardous and almost always incorrect. So I'm hoping this is going to be incorrect. I think we're in for a rocky ride because I think it's going to be more nationalistic China. Everything not going to be easy. Uh, its relations with America are not going to be easy. The temptation to do more activist things on Taiwan uh, may be short of the, the worst thing, which is be military intervention. Uh, I mean, you know, this is all well kind of, you know, founded. Um, so I think the logic of the Xi leadership is going to be a nationalistic, you know, one. And that is going to be harder and harder for the world outside to kind of really um, engage with. Now, there's two things, demographics and, you know, climate. (laughs) These are going to be the moderators. I mean, China's demographic issues are significant, and I don't know what it's going to do about that. Uh, An aging population, you know, it's not an easy thing to deal with. And the second is climate change and its dramatic impacts will probably be the thing that China really works the world together on. And that may well moderate some of these old other more nationalistic issues. So a little kind of bit of optimism maybe, but um, I, I think nationalism is going to be much more, much harder uh, coming for us. We see what we, what we we hear what you have to to say. It's not necessarily reassuring, but it's certainly very very well informed indeed. I'd like to thank you, Kerry, very much indeed. Once again, she a study in power. Um, please go to your local small independent bookshop and buy it. That is the correct thing to uh, to to do. But it is available through other means if you really have to. Um, and um, in general, I think do look to all of Kerry's past works to get a really comprehensive understanding, not just of she, but of modern Chinese society in all sorts of ways. It really is very very acute and serious work in that regard. I'd like to thank everyone from the audience for joining us today. I'd like to thank Intelligence Squared. 